everybody. Welcome back to A Bit of Fun with Emily. It's me, your host, Emily. I am glad you're here. Sorry for the delay in releasing this episode. If I'm being honest, I just didn't have the motivation at the beginning of the week. There was a brief yet uh, anxiety-written medical issue that was uncomfortable and a bit painful, but mostly just way out of my comfort zone. And by the grace of God, the results were the best I could hope for. But it was one of those situations where there was absolutely no desire to do anything but just sit quietly, which of course means I was in a spiral of panic. But the the TV seemed too loud and music that is usually a comfort was annoying and there was no chance of focusing enough to read a book. So the best source of self-care I could get myself was letting go of all of that and just kind of embracing the quiet, which I did. But now that that stress is mostly over, I'm back to my pop culture loving self so that we can wrap up season six and the conversation about some of my favorite films that I haven't had an opportunity to talk about just yet on the pod. And of course, we're sticking with the double feature for one last episode. Today's theme, it happened one day with a subplot of dancing around a dead guy. It's an interesting one, I know. So what might you find in this particular theme? 24 hours, that's what you'll find. All of the action happening in the course of one day. Occasionally it's set at night, which is fun too. In fact, we get one of each in today's movies, one set in the day, one set at night. The point being that the entirety of the plot is happening in just a few short hours. As for the subplot, you will, in fact, have a dead guy just lying around. <laughs> that, was, that was terribly inappropriate. Typically, the dead guy is already dead. It's It's a lot to both kill a guy and dance around him. Dancing, of course, referring to either the disposal of the individual or celebration of his life. So these are really busy 24 hours to begin with. So the writers had to leave plenty of time for the plot to develop and conclude. And that's why typically the guy's already dead. The last element in the plot, all the people doing the dancing, families, friends, unsuspecting passerbys, strangers in the night, each bringing an interesting element to the proceedings. So what is it about this theme that I love? Well, several things, actually. One, it gets to the point. There's never any wasted time in a one-day movie. No wasted time because there's just not enough of it. Short, sweet, and to the point. Number two, dancing around a dead guy is often the perfect formula for comedic hijinks. You kind of think you know how a person would or should react in that kind of situation, but people will always surprise you. And that's very real to life. Um, Not to be morbid, but you go to any funeral and it's a very somber affair. And there's, you know, a lot of grief and, and people sad. And then someone inevitably does something and you're like, Hmm, this seems like a very interesting place for you to to do that or say that. So it just, people always surprise you. And number three, sometimes productivity is relaxing, sometimes not, sometimes exhausting. But when you see a problem present itself and it gets solved all in 24 hours, all in a short period of time, there's a bit of hope that comes along with that, that, hey, I can handle this. It's going to end at some point. What frustrates me about the theme when there's no possible way that everything that happens could actually happen in just 24 hours. Busy, yes, but not unreasonable. And number two, I guess, no one <laughs> no one ever goes to the bathroom or eat. You know, Sometimes you see them eat, but it's like there are human moments that sometimes get missed in movies that like, you have now gone a very long time. When when was your bathroom break? You have not been drinking enough water. Like these are the things sometimes that I think about when I'm watching a movie. 
But we're just going to go ahead and dive in to movie number one, Death at a Funeral, directed by Frank Oz, yes, of Muppet fame, and starring Peter Dinklage, Matthew McFadden, and Alan Tudyk, the unsung hero of everything he's in, when he, even when he's the lead. Like, it, it does not matter if he is playing Hey Hey the Chicken in Moana, or the alien in that alien show i can't remember off the top of my head what it's called resident alien uh that is on a channel sci-fi or something right now whatever he's in he's just the unsung hero he's the man is just not given the love and respect he absolutely deserves i i love alan tudyk so death at a funeral is about a funeral where a bunch of dysfunctional individuals get together to celebrate the life of edward as is typical in all in one day movies, there's there's a lot of moving parts, not necessarily plots, just one plot, but a lot of side stories that elevate the chaos and bring some exceptional comedy. For instance, we have Daniel, the eldest son of Edward, and his wife Jane, who are desperate to get their own flat. It appears that they have been living with his parents. Uh, they have been saving money. They are ready to get a flat. Daniel is an aspiring writer who is constantly getting looked over for his already successful author brother, Robert. And Robert is kind of, he's not a great guy. He's not a mean guy. He's just, he's a very selfish guy. So Daniel has now paid for the entirety of this funeral, and he's trying to get the half that Robert said he would give so that they could get their own flat, him and Jane, and they can move out. So that's one subplot, one substory. We also have Martha, the niece of the deceased, who has brought her secret fiancé, Simon, to the proceedings. Martha's father doesn't particularly like Simon. You don't really get a clear reason why, only that her father is actually very judgmental and awful. And he just isn't shy about voicing not only his opinion of Simon, but also kind of his disappointment that Martha hasn't done more in her life. Um, So on the way to the funeral, Martha and Simon stop to pick up her brother, Troy, who is a... Martha says something to the the effect that he is in pharmacy school, but really he's just kind of a low-key drug dealer. <laughs> and so my, Simon at this point, as they're going to pick up Troy, is is very nervous. He is kind of scared of Martha's father. She wants to calm him down. So she just grabs um, what she believes is a Valium off of Troy's table that he, you know, he just has these drugs lying around and gives it to Simon, except it's not a Valium. Uh, and so Simon then spends the entirety of the event as high as a kite, which gets very interesting and uh, is kind of a crux of some of the chaos that will immediately start once they get to the funeral. So we also can't forget about great Uncle Alfie. He's a rather crotchety fellow who is wheelchair bound and left in the care of Daniel's best friend, Howard, who is a bit of a hypochondriac. He sweats a lot. And he's a little annoying. In all fairness, though, caring for great Uncle Alfie isn't anyone's idea of a good time, especially when you have to help him on and off the toilet. Uh, And so there's just there's all of these people, of course, because it is funeral and all of these things happening. So I I, at this point, I kind of I'm, I'm wondering if you're asking yourself, Emily, how is this movie fun? Well, they're at the funeral. Everyone's there. Everyone has started to gather. And the crowd settles into their seats to start the service. Daniel stands up to give the eulogy, despite that the fact that everyone wants his brother Robert, the author, to give it. When Simon, who is getting increasingly more agitated because the Valium is not a Valium, 
total is just totally off his rocker by this point and is convinced that the casket is moving. There is someone very much alive in that box. And so to watch Simon like trying to hold it all in and he can't, but he's watching this casket and he's convinced and he's reacting to something that's not happening. Well, he ends up flipping out and he tips the casket over and then runs upstairs where he proceeds to strip naked and climb out of the window out onto the roof of the house. So it's a situation. They have to pick up poor dead Edward, get him back in the casket. Everybody's coming down, but now everybody's run outside to see this naked man standing on the roof. So while the attendees are outside, you know, watching this man act like a fool, Daniel is approached by a man that has been circling him all day, uh, a man he has never seen before. This man's name is Peter. And Peter desperately wants to talk to Daniel. So Daniel invites Peter into his office. And it's there that he learns that Peter is his father's secret lover. And Peter, whose presence is a complete surprise, believes that he is entitled to a sum of money because of his relationship with the deceased and is willing to blackmail Daniel to get it. He's got some photos and poor Daniel is given these photos to see. And it's just a completely different side of his father than he's ever seen or known before or would have guessed. So Daniel, who's a bit of a nervous fella anyway, now has even bigger problems on his hands. How is he going to make it through the rest of the day without his mother or any of the guests finding out? That leads to some mild kidnapping, an accidental drug overdose, uh, and with them panicking when Peter, by putting Peter, who they believe is dead, uh, because he's been drugged, he's in a drugged stupor, and he's jumping on the couch, and he falls, and he hits his head on the corner of, like, a coffee table. So they think he's dead, so they put him in the casket with his dearly departed lover, Edward. And and so they're like, we're going to get away with this. <laughs> Again, you think you know how people would or should act, and they just don't. So just as everyone is kind of getting back into the house, they're getting into their seats. Simon is off the roof. He is now clothed. We do find out that Martha is pregnant. So, and she confesses to her father, hey, I'm going to marry this man. It's a sort of lovely moment. Um, But everybody's getting back in their seats. And then Peter comes jumping out of the casket as Daniel starts the eulogy again, shocking everyone and definitely revealing the secret that Daniel has was trying to keep because the photos come flying out too. Uh, but Daniel kind of screams over the din about his father and how he was imperfect, but he was a good man. And it was quite the speech. It was very lovely, um, despite the fact that Robert was the real writer and not Daniel. And everyone except for Edward, of course, survives the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, which I forgot to mention started out with the funeral home bringing the wrong body to the house. So that is, that's death at a funeral. Why is this one on the list? I love how they've taken what is often one of the worst days of a person's life or a group of people's lives and throw them even further into the deep end. There's resilience and there's also hilarity. It's hard to believe that all of that chaos was able to occur in just a few short hours and even harder to believe that the writer and director could keep all of those sub stories moving together and no one was left out. Um, There's not really any dropped plots that you're like, oh, you forgot to tie that up into a nice little bow. And there's such different personalities in this group. It is very British humor. It's a little darker, a little more sarcastic, uh, 
And I, I love that kind of humor. And so it's just to watch these people weave together in this very uncomfortable, awkward situation anyway. And then there ends up being a naked Alan Tudyk, who is a comedic genius on the roof, is just beautiful. His facial expressions, his passable English accent, and the way he, at one point, he's sitting in the a bathroom. The one when he ran upstairs, he's sitting in the bathroom. He's taking off all his clothes, and he's unrolling an entire roll of toilet paper onto the floor with this stupid grin on his face, and he's like, "Go, go, be with the others." As he's talking to each individual square. He's so good because it's, again, it's subtle. It's not a Jim Carrey kind of comedic performance. It's wacky, but it's just not over the top. And he does it so, so well. So it's just, it's one of my favorite movies. Some interesting tidbits. The actors who played married couple, Daniel, who's played by Matthew McFadden, who you might know from uh, Pride and Prejudice with Keira Knightley. He was uh, Mr. Darcy. And Jane, who is played by Keely Halls. Haas, she was on, what else was she on that I watched? Um, the Durls in Corfu, a uh, uh, PBS, it was on PBS Masterpiece because I love that. They are actually husband and wife in real life, which I did not realize. And I thought that was really sweet. Originally, the character of Peter, what it, it, he's played by Peter Dinklage. He wasn't written to be a dwarf. This change was made after Dinklage auditioned. And so the role was rewritten for him and he's perfect for it. There is, of course, a remake that came out three years later, which is the exact same movie, but set in America with a, with a, black family and but peter dinklage plays the exact same character again it's an it's a funny watch they're both very good um according to alan tudyk the inspiration for his stoned performance came from a memory from his teenage years when he once saw an intoxicated teen perched naked on top of a picnic table so he mimicked the same weird pose during his nude scene on the roof i i like how people pull from memories because i think it just tells a lot of people a lot about a person and some of their memories. And finally, Frank Oz once said that it was impossible to make Peter Vaughn, who played Uncle Alfie, laugh on the set because he was so deeply into his crotchety character. He was at the end in the montage, they show um, during the end credits, they show each of the characters breaking character and starting to laugh as it's one of, I, it makes you laugh automatically it is, you just can't help it so he was the only principal actor to refrain from what they referred to as corpsing throughout um so there's no footage of him cracking up in the end credits they do show him but he's just sitting in his wheelchair angry as can be so i love it if you haven't seen death at a funeral i highly recommend it movie number two and now for a classic the last movie we're talking about this season and yet another in my top 10 faves of all times. I love this one. This one stars Cary Grant, is directed by Frank Capra, and it is Arsenic and Old Lace. So we have Mortimer Brewster, who is a, he's a playwright, he's a vocal bachelor who has kind of sworn off marriage. And that is until he meets Elaine Harper, who lives kind of a across the cemetery from the ants that raised him in Brooklyn. And after they get hitched at the courthouse, Mortimer and Elaine hurry back um, to their respective homes to pack for a honeymoon to Niagara Falls. So Mortimer is super excited to share the news with his two aunts. But when he arrives at their home, he kind of gets the shock of a lifetime. There's, there's a dead man lying in their window seat. It turns out that these philanthropic Christian women who 
bring in people from the cold and donate toys to orphans and are well known for the commu- w- throughout the community. Like the police officer who does the beat on the street brought the guy who's going to be taking over his his route and because he wanted him to meet the Brewster sisters because they're so sweet and kind and you have to take care of them. Well, they are in actuality serial killers. They think they're setting people free, these old lonely men who have no hope that come to their their home looking for room and board. And so they're like, oh, they think it's they're doing the nice thing, they're killing him. But so they're actually serial killers. So what they do is they they don't invite the men in specifically to kill them. It just sort of happens. So they are they aren't like premeditated serial killers. So we see a scene where this gentleman comes into the house. He's looking for room and board. They find out that he has no family. He he's kind of down on his luck. He has no job. And so then they they put some arsenic in his wine and and they you know that's how they kill him. And once that deed is done, they give the body to their other nephew who believes himself to be Theodore Roosevelt to bury in Panama, which is actually their basement. So on this particular night, though, that should be one of the happiest in his life. Mortimer is faced with this great dilemma. One, should he pretend that his aunts didn't leave a dead man in the window seat? Two, should he turn them into the cops for their crimes? Or three, should he try to figure out a way to get them out of trouble? His only solution that he can come up with is to frame his brother, Teddy, and get him sent to a sanatorium because everyone knows he's crazy anyway, and maybe he can get the ants off. Like, no, Teddy did this. We all know he's crazy anyway. Maybe no one will go to jail. So while he's out and about trying to get the paperwork signed to make option three happen, another wrench is thrown into the situation. Mortimer's really creepy brother Jonathan comes home. Jonathan just happens to also be a serial killer, but one of the intentional and villainous types who also has a dead body with him that he needs to dispose of. He discovers that he discovers his aunt's dead body in the window seat and kind of, haha, this is the perfect situation and hopes to kind of take over the household and bury his own deceased friend in Panama as well, which they are terribly offended about. They're like, we are, we do not want him buried with ours. It's, it's a funny moment. Um, so all of this is kind of going on. And he's also got this really scary surgeon friend with him, Dr. Einstein, uh, that Einstein has given him several new faces, Jonathan new faces, on more than one occasion to escape the authorities. And Jonathan is not happy with his current face. Dr. Einstein is an alcoholic. It's just all, it's all a bad situation. So it all comes to a head, though, when Mortimer returns and tries to get Jonathan to leave. Jonathan then captures and ties Mortimer up right before the police arrive because the police like to pop in from time to time. They don't lock their doors. And I know that was a thing once upon a time, but it's just startling when someone can just kind of walk right in. So what happens is Teddy Roosevelt likes to blow a bugle and run up the stairs yelling charge, believing that the stairs are San Juan Hill and the neighbors hate that. So anytime he does that, he's been told not to do it. The police show up. So the police officers show up, find Mortimer tied up. Then there's a you know, a, sh- a showdown between everybody. And in the end, Mortimer gets the paperwork to commit Teddy. The ants are like, you know what? We don't, we, we have to go with dear Teddy. We love dear Teddy. We can't just let him go without us. So they decide to move to the sanatorium too. And finally, Mortimer is able to leave on his honeymoon with Elaine. Why is this one on my favorites list? My favorites list 
just wouldn't be complete without at least one Cary Grant movie. And while this may not be one of his favorite performances, he thought he was way over the top. It was definitely mine. The man had he had really good comedic timing, but he was also amazing at physical comedy. And you see this in a lot of different movies there. Um, and not just comedy, just physicality. There's Holiday with Katherine Hepburn where he's doing backflips. And you there, you just see it even in the running of North by Northwest. There's stuff that he does that is physical, that he's just very, very good at it. And this one, he's using his whole body to express shock and fear and confusion. There's one scene in particular that I've always loved. And it may be one of my favorite comedic movie moments of all time. Mortimer has just come back from trying to get the paperwork signed. When he left, his aunt's latest victim was safe and sound in the window box. So he has left this dead man in the window box. Um, but when he gets back, the gentleman is gone and has been replaced with someone new. That someone new, of course, being Jonathan's fella. So he opens the box hurriedly and shuts it, believing that when he opens it, he's just going to see the man that his aunt's killed. So then he pauses and then he slowly opens it again. And the look of shock playing out in stages, the further the lid comes up is, is comedy gold until finally he slams it shut and sits back down on the window box. And then his aunts come in and because he doesn't realize Jonathan is in the house and has brought a dead man, he thinks the aunts have killed yet another poor soul, despite the fact that he told them you know, don't open the door while I'm gone. So his exasperation plays out with a high-pitched whine and his wild arm gestures that just, it gets me every single time. Every time it cracks me up. Cary Grant was charming and handsome and adorable. He was also incredibly funny. And this movie, based on a play, has the most ridiculous plot that you can think of, but you just love it. And it's it's clever in a way. And the actors the that are portraying their roles do it so very well that you just you can't help but laugh. A few interesting tidbits. Cary Grant's birth name is Archie Leach, and it appears on a tombstone in the cemetery between Elaine's home and the Brewster house. In Cary Grant's earlier picture, His Girl Friday, that came out in 1940, another great movie, his character Walter responded to a threat by saying, listen, the last man that said that to me was Archie Leach just a week before he cut his throat. And so as a gag, the departed Mr. Leach was apparently interred in the Brooklyn Cemetery by the Brewster's home. Some 20 years before this movie, actress Gina Dare had helped nurse a very ill vaudeville performer named Archie Leach back to health when she was asked to reprise her Broadway arsenic and old lace role as Aunt Martha for the film Adair and Leach, now known as Cary Grant, were old friends. And I thought that was sweet. On stage, Boris Karloff played the monstrous Jonathan Brewster, and the, the actor who played him in the film Raymond Massey, his his screen makeup just was so eerie and how well they made him look and resemble Karloff, which then became a running gag throughout the film. Um, so they mentioned Boris Karloff several times throughout the film. Karloff really wanted to do the film, but he was kept under contract by the Broadway play producers that the play he was working on and wasn't allowed to do the picture to his immense displeasure, but I guess he was able to reprise his role almost two decades later um, in the TV version that came out in 1962 of Arsenic Old Lace, which I have never seen and I didn't even know existed. So that's very fascinating. And this it was included among the American Film Institute's 2000 list of the top 100 funniest American movies. So that is movie number two. And with that, we are done with season six of the podcast. I hope you'll join me soon for season seven, where 
we're going to explore some popular summer blockbusters, which just so happen to include a couple more of my all-time favorite movies. I'm looking at you, Back to the Future and Jurassic Park. Thank you so much for listening, really. It is so appreciated. If you haven't already, I hope you subscribe so we can keep going on this journey together. And if you've got the time, it would be awesome if you could rate and review so that other individuals who like random conversations about pop culture with someone who doesn't really know what they're talking about, well, they can join in on the fun as well. Or if you want to share the podcast, that would be awesome too. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at at GnomeGirlM and on Facebook as A Bit of Fun with Emily. Go have yourself a bit of fun today, and I will see you next time.